This is Strange Assembly, episode 326. Catching up is hard to do. I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. Or, are we a podcast? How long between episodes is it that you cease to actually be a podcast and become new and rejuvenated again? I don't know, but... Let's move on from these philosophical questions. I am back, and we are here today to talk about one role-playing game supplement and two board games. But first, we're going to talk about Keys from the Golden Vault, the 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons supplement that came out earlier this year. This is one of several adventure anthologies that have been released for 5th edition. You had, you know, the aquatic-themed Ghosts of Saltmarsh and the reprinted classics in Tales from the Yawning Portal. The theme in Keys from the Golden Vault is heists. Each adventure is its own miniature heist movie with a single location to infiltrate and an object to be acquired. It is, of course, not a coincidence that the Dungeons & Dragons movie, Honor Among Thieves, is itself basically a heist movie. Compared to prior adventure offerings, the heist adventure theme of Keys from the Golden Gate is most reminiscent of the mystery theme from Candlekeep Mysteries, a theme on style and mood. Like other adventure anthologies, there is no real connection between the adventures here other than the theme. Well, there is one sort of connection, the Golden Vault. This organization of good guy thieves, basically, serves the role of Mission Impossible-style quest assigner. I think it's relatively likely to be used, because I think Keys from the Golden Vault is relatively likely to be used playing all of the adventures in a row, instead of just dropping one into an existing game. And that's because the sort of characters who make for a good heist team can be very different from a standard Dungeons & Dragons party. But, you might ask... If go to place A and get thing B is a pretty traditional Dungeons & Dragons plot anyway, what is it that makes a heist adventure different from a normal D&D adventure? Well, a few things. Sure, a standard D&D adventure might involve invading a Thieves' Guild headquarters to steal something back from them. But that standard adventure plan is probably going to involve something like show up, kill the thieves, take their stuff. The plan for a heist, on the other hand, generally involves not getting into fights, or only getting into very fast, very quiet fights that don't attract a lot of attention. And this is where that different player character skill set comes in. Rogues and illusionists will be at a premium. Casting fireball or loading up on healing spells? Not as much. These are the sort of adventures where every character probably wants to have stealth and athletics and some social skills, or the ability to bypass that sort of thing using magic. But beyond the type of plan, one other difference is the fact that there is real planning at all. Laying out the plan is always a big part of any heist film, right? And to help that out, every single target in Keys from the Golden Vault has a map handout to give the players up front. Don't get me wrong, this isn't, you know, the detailed and actually accurate map like the DM has, but they have something. So what what are the heists in Keys from the Golden Vault? It has 13 heists over 11 levels. Your double dip levels are 5 and 8, and it covers about 200 pages. The heists include stealing a magical egg from a natural history museum, a casino heist, getting a 
mystical codex from a corrupted mansion, breaking into prison to get information out of a criminal, retrieving a security key to shut down automatons going berserk, breaking into a thieves' guild to steal back a painting, breaking into a thieves' guild to steal back a diadem, retrieving a stolen mandolin, sneaking into a mine to put back a mystical shard to prevent earthquakes, retrieving the dead king's still-beating heart to stop an evil ritual, a train job, and infiltrating a gala to steal a magical gem. I won't say which one, because, you know, spoilers, but note that at least one of these is not a heist. It's just a dungeon delve with another name. The characters get a map, but they're just stomping room to room. If you're angling to try something that really, really feels like a heist, the low-level openers, the Merkmire Malevolence and the Sigian Gambit, are a good place to start, or at slightly higher level, those two Thieves' Guild break-ins, the Masterpiece Imbroglio and Viran's Vault, fit the bill. Some of the other ones, like the like there's a train job, right? That sounds like a classic heist, but they aren't really pulled off in that way. Better than the ones, like there are some of these adventures that I like better than the ones that I've just mentioned, but those adventures, like The Shard of the Accursed or Talkworth's Clockworks, try saying that seven times fast, they aren't as much of a heist as Merkmile Malevolence or Veteran's Vault. In evaluating whether or not you're interested in Keys from the Golden Vault, the need for and type of planning is where I think Keys for the Golden Vault will live or die. Because it is very difficult to replicate the sort of planning that goes on in a heist film. And it's very difficult to replicate the way that things go wrong in exactly the right or precisely the wrong way to be interesting. Right? Characters in Keys from the Golden Vault are not going to have the ability to do things like precisely time out guard movements or conveniently discover that there's an air vent that goes from the exact point A to the exact point B that they need. When things go awry, the character who's on hand isn't always going to have exactly the needed skill to make things right, or at the least, you know, more importantly, perhaps, to make things interesting. So making keys from the Golden Vault work is going to be even more dependent on the player group than a typical Dungeons & Dragons campaign. There are groups that will, if you let them, spend 30 minutes deciding exactly which spells to memorize and which artificer gadgets to have that day. These sorts of groups are probably not going to take well to the challenge of trying to plan out an entire caper in advance. There's also a lot of weight on the GM to adjudicate exactly when things go wrong and what happens when they go wrong. These adventures can be very all or nothing. Some have very easy DCs to talk past guards. Some seem like there's no plausible non-magical way to accomplish the task undetected. Some of the adventures can be almost entirely bypassed by a combination of magic and being lucky. And that's good for the characters, but that's not really good for having a fun adventure. So as a DM, how far should you go to keep things feeling like a heist? Should you add new challenges when things are too easy? Should you back off when things don't work out? Or do you just let the game devolve into an extended fight scene as more and more guards come running into the battle site, thus reducing your heist into a you know more traditional bloodletting and looting? In my head, 
I keep comparing Keys from the Golden Vault to Blades in the Dark, which is a highly respected tabletop role-playing game that is all about heists and other related criminal activity. And I keep going back to Blades in the Dark because I think the single best mechanic in that game is that it basically prohibits advanced planning. The narrative just jumps straight into the heist taking place, and then there are mechanics about fitting the planning in as you go, right? So you're, you're eliminating the whole planning thing. Overall, I like that Dungeons & Dragons has been trying to branch out, including books like this and Candlekeep Mysteries. But heists are much more difficult to turn into an RBG than dungeon delving or solving a mystery. And a heist RPG kind of wants mechanics built around the concept. And Dungeons and Dragons is not designed for a really nuanced presentation of key heist elements like stealth, bluffing your way past guards, or scaling walls. There are going to be groups out there who manage to fall into a sweet spot where they enjoy the planning, but don't get too caught up in it, and then can replan on the fly. A combination of player attitude and aptitude, that can be hard to find. And then on top of that, you, you need the DM who has the ability to, to roll with that in a way too, that both stays true to the challenges of the adventure, while having the just the right degree of flexibility. So I fear that with Keys from the Golden Vault, D&D may have bitten off more than it can chew. Again, that is Keys from the Golden Vault, the Dungeons & Dragons supplement from, of course, Wizards of the Coast, released earlier this year. I thought I'd actually talk about not a role-playing game on the podcast. Hey, that's different. What we have today is is one licensed game and one game that isn't licensed but sure feels like it is. And let's start with that second one, which is Starship Captains from CGE. All you have to do is look at the cover art of Starship Captains and you can see that it is an homage to Star Trek. It kind of reminded me of the way that there was a period of time. We, there's, there's actual Star Trek shows now, but there was a, a stretch in time where like when Orville came on and you were like, it's the best new Star Trek series that we've seen in years. Well, it, in the same kind of way, Starship Captains is, is not a Star Trek game, but it technically, but it's probably the best Star Trek game that we've seen in the last, uh, what, five-ish years, maybe? So... In Starship Captains, you are indeed a Starship Captain in something that is vaguely like Starfleet, but you are, you're not commanding the Enterprise, you're commanding some run-down, patched-up ship that maybe needs a little bit more repair work. It's somewhere in tone between the next generation and Lower Decks, right? So, your ship has seen better days, you need to fix the rusty spots, you're going to add new tech. There's a fleet HQ and an android species and even pirates to make uh, friends with. Not that that will stop the pirates from attacking you. There's a bunch of missions out there that need to be completed. These are often humorously referential, some of them very obvious, like harvesting rotten berries. Some of them more ambiguous, dealing with that pesky omnipotent being, or the ever-popular repairing the repair station. Mechanically, 
Uh, there's several things going on in here. The, the basic actions and the basic crew in this game come in three colors, red, yellow, blue. And those correspond to different specialties. Your red cadets are the ones who can use the helm action to move your ship to another location on the board, probably where you want to complete a mission. Yellow cadets can use the weapons action to shoot down pirates. Blue cadets can use the science action to add new tech to your ship. And there's also a gray action repairing the ship that can be taken by any crew member. And some crew who can't take a color-coded action at all, those pieces are gray. Which crew you're going to have available to take actions rotates from turn to turn. You have a player board. It's shaped like a starship. And crew that are in the ready room can be used to take actions on a given turn. At the end of an action where someone is assigned, they go off-duty and are slotted into the semicircular path on your player board. At the end of the round, the crew leave this queue until there are only three left off-duty and the rest are ready for the next turn. Missions are accomplished by sending crew down to a planet. This is the, the biggest source of getting stuff and victory points and all that. Each mission card has slots on the left of the card for crew and gives you those victory points. But also, each of those slots has a color. And if the crew you assign to the mission matches that color, you get an extra bonus. So it, it might be like, oh, well, if you complete this mission, you get three points. But also, if you assigned a red crew member to this particular slot, you increase your standing with a faction. And oh, you also get an artifact. Android crew can only do missions, and they go away after one assignment, but they count as matching any color on a mission slot, and there are a few mission slots that only an android can match. Shooting down pirates means gaining artifacts, medals, and androids, and maybe points at the end of the game. Artifacts are each in two colors, the red, blue, yellow again, and if you have two artifacts, you can discard those two artifacts to take the action of the color that they share in common. So right, if you have a yellow-blue artifact and a blue-red artifact, you could discard those to take a blue action. Medals are used to train or promote your crew. One medal can be used to upgrade one of those gray ensigns to a cadet, or it can change the color of one of your cadets, like retraining them. Three medals let you promote a cadet to a commander. Commanders can take two actions on your turn, or they can double the rewards you get by assigning them to a mission, or you can pull an off-duty crew member back into the ready room. Shooting down pirates, of course, also means that those pirates aren't there to damage your ship if you then want to use your next action to move the ship through where the pirates used to be. The blue action, adding technology, has two effects. First, each tech card that you're getting does its own thing. It might be a new action that crew members can take, it might be an enhancement to an existing action, or it might be worth endgame victory points. But also, tech cards and the slots on this, this tech board that you have uh, have these icons around the edges. And when a newly placed tech card makes a pair with one of those edge icons, you get a bonus. So if, if you have an empty slot that has a repair icon on its right edge, and you put a card one slot 
over to the right, and that new card has a repair icon on its left edge, you'll get to repair one damage to your ship. The tech row can be damaged, or the ship itself can be damaged. If you have damage on the tech row, that means that you can't put a card in that slot. If you have damage on the ship, that limits what you can hold as far as artifacts or trophies for defeating pirates. So that can reduce your flexibility or reduce what kind of victory points you can rack up at the end of the game. And the repair action, of course, removes this damage. And remember, your ship starts damaged, so that's always an option to do at the beginning of the game. A final element of this, which I, I hinted at earlier, was is that there are faction tracks. So you can gain reputation with the factions, with Fleet HQ, with the androids, with the pirates. And there are these three space station boards that each of those has. And the higher your faction gets, the more rewards you get every few steps along the way, different kinds of rewards for the different factions. But also, the first time that any player gets high enough with a given faction it triggers a faction event, which is randomly determined. It's, it's the same every time for the androids, but then they do something with a random technology. And that has a permanent impact on the game. At the end of the game, points are awarded for missions, they're awarded for the faction tracks, for the techs you have, for what commanders you have, and a bunch of leftover sorts of things, like do you have any androids left on your ship, pirate trophies from once you shot down, that sort of thing. You lose points if your ship still has damage on it, most points wins and gets a humorous epilogue. So score 34 points and you return home only to meet yourself leaving on the expedition because you messed up the timeline. Well, but if you have 47 points, now it's your future self showing up and begging you to get to Wolf 359 on the double because you're the only one who can save them. All told, I would recommend Starship Captains for a Star Trek fan who is looking for a, a lighthearted, medium weight game. The tone and humor are great. The mechanics have some distinctive elements, and it was fun running around the galaxy, sort of mechanically maximizing the timing and efficiency of your actions. I also really like the components in Starship Captains. I really liked that they didn't just use all the same mold for each of the crew members. So this isn't something like all of your red helm officers are this one human male sculpt, all of your weapon officers are this one alien sculpt, and then all your science team is a particular human female sculpt. Instead, each sculpt appears in all of the colors, which required CGG to go to this extra step of ensuring that all the sculpts had the exact same weight. So the packing process, where you know where the, the bits and pieces are dropping down in, they have all the way the exact same for that to work properly. And I really appreciate that they varied that up a bit. Uh, the ships themselves are, all, are also nifty, right? I like that your player board looks like a ship. And then the ship mover that you have out on the board, you have to put together from cardboard punch outs, so you end up with this sort of three-dimensional ship that's a little... I mean, I think any a lot of things would just be like, oh, well, here's your plastic ship mini. But they kind of looked different. It was a little, little variety to construct this ship that you were going to use. Combined with the stylistic art and the good graphic design, it gives a little bit extra bit of flavor to spice up the game. That's, that's Starship Captains from... CGE. The other one is Marvel Age of Heroes from WizKids. The thing one you want to know about Marvel Age of Heroes is that it's X-Men, which is important for me to disclose in advance because I love the X-Men, and this has lots of deep-cut X-Men references, so you know I'm kind of inherently biased in its favor. The other thing is that it is the mechanics are loosely 
an extension of Lords of Waterdeep. The designer here, Rodney Thompson, is one of the designers of Lords of Waterdeep. And I love Lords of Waterdeep. I think it's arguably the best entry-level worker placement game. It's certainly one of them. So I was pretty psyched up for Marvel Age of Heroes. A turn in Age of Heroes is divided into two stages. There's an institute phase, and then there's a mission phase. So in the, in the first stage, you're sending your X-Men to the Xavier Institute, mostly gathering resources and playing cards. And then in that second stage, you are sending the X-Men who went to the X-Jet. You technically assign them to the X-Jet in the Institute phase. Then during the mission phase, they go out and they are in some way attacking, you know, and trying to defeat whatever the villain du jour is. And one of the noteworthy things about this is that each of your workers that you're assigning is a specific member of the X-Men. Each player has a team of their X-Men. The number of pawns you get varies based on the player count, but also most of the teams are split between two different members of the X-Men. So if you're playing the Cyclops and Jean Grey team, right, like half of your workers are Cyclops and half of your workers are Jean Grey, it's not always balanced. If you're playing Kitty Pride and Lockheed, no matter how many pawns you get, there's just one Lockheed and everything else is Kitty Pride. And Magic is actually just Magic. All six of them are just Magic. The other teams are Rogue and Gambit, Wolverine and Jubilee, and Storm and Forge. Each team has a power, like when you make a certain type of attack on the X-Men enemies, you get extra points. But also, each character will gain powers through evolution cards over the course of the game that apply only to that character, right? So Rogue can fly, Gambit likes cards. So when you take the Rogue evolution representing her flight, that doesn't apply when you assign the Gambit pawn. And when you have the Gambit evolutions that give you bonus playing for playing event cards, those don't work when you assign the Rogue pawn. Each of these pawns is a double-sided 2D acrylic miniature. If you are familiar with the Heroclix miniatures game that is also published by WizKids, you may recognize that the images that they are using for the acrylics are based on the files for sculpts from Heroclix minis. Okay, so that's your overview. So like, what are these two stages? Institute phase, mission phase. So in the Xavier Institute, the built-in actions on the board are to gather resources. There's three, it's physical, mental, and willpower. It's, it's you know, three cube colors. You can play those evolution cards. You can draw cards from the Institute deck or you can play two of the three kinds of cards from the Institute deck. One of those kinds is allies. So ally cards are like buildings in Lords of Waterdeep. You add more action spaces for the X-Men to assign to. But there's a, a significant difference here because the ally cards are all free, right? There's no, oh, you have to pay eight to assign the ally card. You just take the, you have to draw the card. You have to take the action to play the card, but there isn't a cost beyond that. Also, in Lords of Waterdeep, all of the buildings are just universally better than the starting slot, and that is not the case in Age of Heroes. So the allies play a much more significant role in Age of Heroes, and more of that role is just about having options. Like, you don't start with as many Institute spots. You need the allies to build it out around. And like I said, because they're not just strictly better, a lot of it's just about having options. So for example, when I say they aren't strictly better, the base spot on the board that collects red gives you four red. There's one ally that gives you six red. There's another ally who gives you three. So definitely a different design philosophy there. 
But like in Lords of Waterdeep, each ally is marked by the player who recruited them, and that player gets a bonus whenever another player assigns to that ally. But that bonus is not determined by the ally card, it's determined by the slot on the board that you put the ally card in. Bonuses include getting more resource cards, drawing more cards from the Institute deck, or student pawns. Students are basically one-shot workers. They can only assign to the Institute. They can't be sent on missions. And like I said, they are one-shot. They're generic. You can't tell who they belong to. Once you put them out at the end of the turn, they just all go back into the pool. The other type of Institute cards that can be played in the Institute are event cards. Event cards are just one-shot actions, and frankly, most of them are pretty weak. The default space that allows you to play an event card is also used to claim spots in the turn order for next round. But unlike Lords of Waterdeep, it doesn't have that, oh, you play the weakish thing, and then you can go reassign later in the round. So, like I mentioned, during the Institute phase, you can also place one of your X-Men on the X-Jet. The very first X-Men who goes on the X-Jet each turn gets to play one of the third kind of Institute cards, a team-up. And we'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But once everything is done at the Institute, then the mission phase sees the X-Men leave on the X-Jet. And the standard thing you would do is to assign to the mission tile, and one of, one of the mission tiles. And each of the mission tiles represents a bad guy who needs to be defeated. Minions, then lieutenants, then a mastermind. Each mission tile has a certain number of slots for the villain to be damaged. In each slot has a resource cost, a color, and victory points awarded. When all of those slots have been damaged, the villain has been defeated, which typically grants a bonus to the players who pitched in. Sometimes that extra bonus is based on just having damaged the villain at all. Sometimes it's based on how many times you assigned the damage. And what those team-ups do is that they give you an alternate way to damage the villain. A typical team-up card allows an X-Man to assign from the X-Jet to the card and pay a resource cost that's typically less than the resource cost that's printed on the mission tiles, and then damage any enemy slot of a particular color. But many of the team-ups have additional effects as well. Some of them might have a team-up effect when you recruit the person, some of them might give you something in addition to putting that damage marker down. You might get a student pawn, you might get to play an event, you might get to do an evolution, whatever. There's at least one team-up card that doesn't even put a damage marker at all. It's just getting other stuff, but you have to assign to the X-Jet and go out to do that. The final thing on the missions phase is the extraction zone, and this basically provides a place for you to assign your X-Men if you put them down on the X-Jet, but when it gets to your turn, you can't actually fulfill the requirements of one of the remaining slots on a mission tile or one of the remaining team-up cards. There are other strategic reasons why you might do this, but that's the, the sort of basic one. And that lets you get some other reward with that X-Men, and that, gets, that reward gets better and better as the game goes on. Once enough villains have been defeated, the game ends. There are three scenarios in the game, Fall of the Mutants, Fatal Attractions, and Children of the Atom. Each of them has some particular parameters that vary. I say I want to say vary from the standard, but you actually, you're always playing one of the scenarios. But they don't vary that much from each other. They have a little bit different parameters, some different cards that go in the Institute deck, different villains, but they ultimately don't feel very different from each other. So the, the basics of the game started well. And like I said, I was, I was very excited by this, but, but there are some flaws 
mechanically to Age of Heroes. The most notable one is the game just lasts too long. For me, at least, there are a lot of Euro-style games where you start the game and you look at the rules and you're like, wow, five turns or six turns. Oh, that's that feels so short. But it keeps the tension going and it keeps the game fresh. The game does not overstay its welcome. Well, Age of Heroes doesn't limit itself like that, and it often does overstay its welcome. Our typical games would see four villains defeated, both of the starting minions, one of the lieutenants, and then one of the mastermind. But I think the game kind of wants to just end after three villains. By the time the mastermind actually comes out and is getting damage on him, the board is mostly full. Everyone mostly has their powers unlocked, and probably the winner is apparent well before the game ends. There are also several of what I'll call balance issues in a very loose sense between different stages of the game, between different player counts, between different card types. A lot of this revolves around the cards in the deck. Like I mentioned earlier, events are mostly bad. When you're drawing cards in the deck most of the time, you really want like a good ally or a good team up to be able to play. And we rarely wanted to actually play the event cards. You know, you're like, oh, well, there's a lot of players. There's only so many slots. I guess I like to go earlier next round. They don't have that reassignment aspect like the Lords of Waterdeep cards do, but the cards in Age of Heroes are generally weaker than the cards in Lords of Waterdeep. But for the other cards, right, like allies are extremely desirable in the early game, but once most of the board is full, it becomes just less and less likely that you'd want to draw one that you'd actually want to play. And right, as less as there's less and less time in the game, of course, there's less and less of an incentive to take an action to play one of those. You don't get points for playing. Not usually. You don't know exactly who the mastermind is at the start of the game. Each of the masterminds has some end game bonus point condition on it, so it might end up being about allies, but you wouldn't know that in advance. And so they're super desirable early, but really not interesting much late. And that can be exacerbated because, right, there's a decent number of the allies that are just situational or weak. So it's not only like, do you want to play allies less, but you're more and more of the allies are going to just do things that aren't interesting late game. Like, oh, the ally that lets you play an evolution card, that's really nifty right at the start of the game. But once you're on turn six and almost everyone has done their evolutions and the evolution spot isn't that open, I mean, and how this works changes with different player counts, but still. There's also more of a pull towards the mission phase as the game goes on, which you might think emphasizes the importance of getting team-up cards, except there's even fewer slots for team-up cards, and that was almost always full. So for every time we play this game, every time we play this game, there came a point like halfway through the game, maybe two-thirds of the game, where team-up cards were completely useless because there was nowhere to play a new team-up card, even if you wanted to. And so then you you get to this point in the game where really the only thing you want out of the Institute deck is event cards, in theory, except the event cards are mostly bad. So all of a sudden, this whole aspect of the game kind of falls away over time. So again, it's this mix of how long does the game last? How are the different components balanced against each other, different stages? It's... And all of that is is really a shame, right? I... I, I love the Lords of Waterdeep Foundation. I love all the X-Men stuff. I mean, so many characters between all the allies. X-Men, New Mutants, Generation X, Young X-Men. It's great. I love the art that they use. I love the way that your workers are distinguished 
by characters with their own powers. I love the way that you can do nifty things by setting up combos with your evolution cards to make those individual workers niftier over the course of the game. But Age of Heroes just isn't mechanically polished in the way that Lords of Waterdeep is. If you love the X-Men and you can get past gameplay that is uneven, that drags on, you can have a good time with Age of Heroes, but I really wish that they had executed the concept better. That is Marvel Age of Heroes. Thank you for listening to this much belated episode of the Strange Assembly podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can find more episodes of the podcast there. You can also subscribe on iTunes or through Amazon Podcasts or hopefully whatever podcatching service you use. If you don't see us on your service or if you just want to reach out, you can find me at chris at strangeassembly.com. We also have a Strange Assembly Facebook page and we're on Instagram and I guess we technically still have an account on whatever they're calling Twitter these days. But until then, I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming. Oh, wait, and promotional consideration was provided in the form of review copies. If you can figure out a way to click a link in a podcast, let me know, and then we can add that disclaimer about how Strange Assembly may receive affiliate commissions from links in this podcast. That'd be great.